Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing our reading of Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. As with previous weeks, there will be footnotes and figures referenced throughout the reading. Please check the show notes for information on those, and if you need, go to abnormalmapping.com, find this episode's page, and you'll see the figures represented there. We're past halfway in this book, at least in terms of chapter count, so we're barreling through towards the end, even if it'll take us another month. But without further delay, let's get started on part 5. Chapter 6. Division of the World Among the Great Powers In his book on The Territorial Development of the European Colonies, A. Supin, footnote 1, the geographer, gives the following brief summary of this development at the end of the 19th century. Figure 1. Percentage of territory belonging to European colonial powers, and how it changed, mostly growing, between 1876 and 1900. Quote, the characteristic feature of this period, he concludes, is therefore the division of Africa and Polynesia. End quote. As there are no unoccupied territories, that is, territories that do not belong to any state in Asia and America, it is necessary to amplify Supan's conclusion and say that the characteristic feature of the period under review is the final partitioning of the globe. Final, not in the sense that repartition is impossible. On the contrary, repartitions are possible and inevitable. But in the sense that the colonial policy of the capitalist countries has completed the seizure of the unoccupied territories on our planet. For the first time, the world is completely divided up. So that in the future, only redivision is possible. I.e., territories can only pass from one owner to another instead of passing as ownerless territory to an owner. Hence, we are living in a peculiar epoch of world colonial policy, which is most closely connected with the latest stage in the development of capitalism, with finance capital. For this reason, it is essential, first of all, to deal in greater detail with the facts, in order to ascertain as exactly as possible what distinguishes this epoch from those preceding it, and what the present situation is. In the first place, two questions of fact arise here. Is an intensification of colonial policy, a sharpening of the struggle for colonies, observed precisely in the epoch of finance capital? And how, in this respect, is the world divided at the present time? The American writer Morris, in his book On the History of Colonization, footnote 2, made an attempt to sum up the data on the colonial possessions of Great Britain, France, and Germany, during different periods of the 19th century. The following is a brief summary of the results he has obtained. Figure 2. Area and population controlled by Great Britain, France, and Germany, and how it changed from 1815 to 1899. For Great Britain, the period of the enormous expansion of colonial conquests was that between 1860 and 1880, and it was also very considerable in the last 20 years of the 19th century. For France and Germany, this period falls precisely in these 20 years. We saw above that the development of pre-monopoly capitalism, of capitalism in which free competition was predominant, reached its limit in the 1860s and 1870s. We now see that it is precisely after that period that the tremendous boom in colonial conquests begins, and that the struggle for the territorial division of the world becomes extraordinarily sharp. 
It is beyond doubt, therefore, that capitalism's transition to the stage of monopoly capitalism, to finance capital, is connected with the intensification of the struggle for the partitioning of the world. Hobson, in his work on imperialism, marks the years 1884 to 1900 as the epoch of intensified expansion of the chief European states. According to his estimate, Great Britain during these years acquired 3,700,000 square miles of territory, with 57 million inhabitants. France, 3,600,000 square miles, with 36,500,000 inhabitants. Germany, 1 million square miles, with 14,700,000 inhabitants. Belgium, 900,000 square miles, with 30 million inhabitants. Portugal, 800,000 square miles, with 9 million inhabitants. The scramble for colonies by all the capitalist states at the end of the 19th century, and particularly since the 1880s, is a commonly known fact in the history of diplomacy and of foreign policy. In the most flourishing period of free competition in Great Britain, i.e. between 1840 and 1860, the leading British bourgeois politicians were opposed to colonial policy, and were of the opinion that the liberation of the colonies, their complete separation from Britain, was inevitable and desirable. M. Beer, in an article, Modern British Imperialism, footnote 3, published in 1898, shows that in 1852, Disraeli, a statesman who was generally inclined towards imperialism, declared, The colonies are millstones round our necks. But at the end of the 19th century, the British heroes of the hour were Cecil Rhodes and Joseph Chamberlain, who openly advocated imperialism and applied the imperialist policy in the most cynical manner. It is not without interest to observe that even then, these leading British bourgeois politicians saw the connection between what might be called the purely economic and the socio-political roots of modern imperialism. Chamberlain advocated imperialism as a true, wise, and economical policy, and pointed particularly to the German, American, and Belgian competition which Great Britain was encountering in the world market. Salvation lies in monopoly, said the capitalists as they formed cartels, syndicates, and trusts. Salvation lies in monopoly, echoed the political leaders of the bourgeoisie, hastening to appropriate the parts of the world not yet shared out. And Cecil Rhodes, we are informed by his intimate friend, the journalist Stead, expressed his imperialist views to him in 1895 in the following terms. Quote, I was in the East End of London, a working-class quarter, yesterday, and attended a meeting of the unemployed. I listened to the wild speeches, which were just a cry for bread, bread. And on my way home, I pondered over the scene, and I became more than ever convinced of the importance of imperialism. My cherished idea is a solution for the social problem, i.e., in order to save the 40 million inhabitants of the United Kingdom from a bloody civil war, we colonial statesmen must acquire new lands to settle the surplus population, to provide new markets for the goods produced in the factories and mines. The empire, as I have always said, is a bread and butter question. If you want to avoid civil war, you must become imperialists. Footnote 4. End quote. That was said in 1895 by Cecil Rhodes, millionaire, a king of finance, the man who is mainly responsible for the Anglo-Boer War. True, his defense of imperialism is crude and cynical, 
but in substance, it does not differ from the theory advocated by Mr. Maslov, Surikam, Potrasov, David, the founder of Russian Marxism, and others. Cecil Rhodes was a somewhat more honest social chauvinist. To present as precise a picture as possible of the territorial division of the world, and of the changes which have occurred during the last decades in this respect, I shall utilize the data furnished by Supam in the work already quoted on the colonial possessions of all the powers of the world. Supam takes the years 1876 and 1900. I shall take the year 1876, a year very aptly selected, for it is precisely by that time that the pre-monopolist stage of development of West European capitalism can be said to have been, in the main, completed. And the year 1914. And instead of Supan's figures, I shall quote the more recent statistics of Hubner's geographical and statistical tables. Supan gives figures only for the colonies. I think it useful, in order to present a complete picture of the division of the world, to add brief data on non-colonial and semi-colonial countries, in which category I place Persia, China, and Turkey. The first of these countries is already almost completely a colony. The second and third are becoming such. We thus get the following result. Figure 3, area and population of colonies and metropolitan countries between 1876 and 1914 for Great Britain, Russia, France, Germany, the United States, and Japan. Figure 4, area and population for colonies of other powers, semi-colonial countries, other countries, and the world totals. We clearly see from these figures how complete was the partition of the world at the turn of the 20th century. After 1876, colonial possessions increased to enormous dimensions, by more than 50%, from 40 million to 65 million square kilometers for the six biggest powers. This increase amounts to 25 million square kilometers, 50% more than the area of the metropolitan countries, 16.5 million square kilometers. In 1876, three powers had no colonies, and a fourth, France, had scarcely any. By 1914, these four powers had acquired colonies with an area of 14.1 million square kilometers, i.e. about half as much again as the area of Europe with a population of nearly 100 million. The unevenness in the rate of expansion of colonial possessions is very great. If, for instance, we compare France, Germany, and Japan, which do not differ very much in area and population, we see that the first has acquired almost three times as much colonial territory as the other two combined. In regard to finance capital, France, at the beginning of the period we are considering, was also, perhaps, several times richer than Germany and Japan put together. In addition to, and on the basis of, purely economical conditions, geographical and other conditions also affect the dimensions of colonial possessions. However strong the process of leveling the world, of leveling the economic and living conditions in different countries, may have been in the past decades as a result of the pressure of large-scale industry, exchange, and finance capital, considerable differences still remain. And among the six countries mentioned, we see, firstly, young capitalist countries, America, Germany, and Japan, whose progress has been extraordinarily rapid. Secondly, countries with an old capitalist development, France and Great Britain, whose progress lately has been much slower than that of the previously mentioned countries. And thirdly, 
a country most backward economically, Russia, where modern capitalist imperialism is enmeshed, so to speak, in a particularly close network of pre-capitalist relations. Alongside the colonial possessions of the great powers, we have placed the small colonies of the small states, which are, so to speak, the next objects of a possible and probable redivision of colonies. These small states mostly retain their colonies only because the big powers are torn by conflicting interests, friction, etc., which prevent them from coming to an agreement on the division of the spoils. As to the semi-colonial states, they provide an example of the transitional forms which are to be found in all spheres of nature and society. Finance capital is such a great, such a decisive, you might say, force in all economic and in all international relations that it is capable of subjecting, and actually does subject, to itself, even states enjoying the fullest political independence. We shall shortly see examples of this. Of course, finance capital finds most convenient, and derives the greatest profit from, a form of subjection which involves the loss of the political independence of the subjected countries and peoples. In this respect, the semi-colonial countries provide a typical example of the middle stage, it is natural that the struggle for these semi-dependent countries should have become particularly bitter in the epoch of finance capital, when the rest of the world has already been divided up. Colonial policy and imperialism existed before the latest stage of capitalism, and even before capitalism. Rome, founded on slavery, pursued a colonial policy and practiced imperialism. But general disquisitions on imperialism which ignore or put into the background the fundamental difference between socio-economic formations, inevitably turn to the most vapid banality or bragging, like the comparison Greater Rome and Greater Britain. Footnote 5. Even the capitalist colonial policy of previous stages of capitalism is essentially different from the colonial policy of finance capital. The principal feature of the latest stage of capitalism is the domination of monopolist associations of big employers. These monopolies are most firmly established when all the sources of raw materials are captured by one group, and we have seen with what zeal the international capitalist associations exert every effort to deprive their rivals of all opportunity of competing to buy up, for example, iron fields, oil fields, etc., Colonial possession alone gives the monopolies complete guarantee against all contingencies in the struggle against competitors, including the case of the adversary wanting to be protected by a law establishing a state monopoly. The more capitalism is developed, the more strongly the shortage of raw materials is felt. The more intense the competition and the hunt for sources of raw materials throughout the world, the more desperate the struggle for the acquisition of colonies. Quote, it may be asserted, writes Schilder, although it may sound paradoxical to some, that in the more or less foreseeable future, the growth of the urban and industrial population is more likely to be hindered by a shortage of raw materials for industry than by a shortage of food. End quote. For example, there is a growing shortage of timber, the price of which is steadily rising, of leather, and of raw materials for the textile industry. Quote, Associations of manufacturers are making efforts to create an equilibrium between agriculture and industry in the whole of world economy. As an example of this, we might mention the International Federation of Cotton Spinners Associations in several of the most important industrial countries, 
founded in 1904, and the European Federation of Flax Spinners Associations, founded on the same model in 1910. Footnote 6. End quote. Of course, the bourgeois reformists, and among them particularly the present-day adherents of Kotsky, try to belittle the importance of facts of this kind by arguing that raw materials could be obtained in the open market without a costly and dangerous colonial policy, and that the supply of raw materials could be increased enormously by simply improving conditions in agriculture in general. But such arguments become an apology for imperialism, an attempt to paint it in bright colours, because they ignore the principal feature of the latest stage of capitalism, monopolies. The free market is becoming more and more a thing of the past. Monopolist syndicates and trusts are restricting it with every passing day, and simply improving conditions in agriculture means improving the conditions of the masses, raising wages and reducing profits. Where, except in the imagination of sentimental reformists, are there any trusts capable of concerning themselves with the condition of the masses instead of the conquest of colonies? Finance capital is interested not only in the already discovered sources of raw materials, but also in potential sources. Because present-day technical development is extremely rapid, and land which is useless today may be improved tomorrow if new methods are devised, to this end, a big bank can equip a special expedition of engineers, agricultural experts, etc., and if large amounts of capital are invested. This also applies to prospecting for minerals, to new methods of processing up and utilizing raw materials, etc., etc. Hence, the inevitable striving of finance capital to enlarge its sphere of influence and even its actual territory. In the same way that the trusts capitalize their property as two or three times its value, taking into account its potential, and not actual, profits, and the further results of monopoly. So, finance capital in general strives to seize the largest possible amount of land of all kinds, in all places, and by every means, taking into account potential sources of raw material, and fearing to be left behind in the fierce struggle for the last remnants of independent territory, or for the repartition of those territories that have been already divided. The British capitalists are exerting every effort to develop cotton growing in their colony, Egypt. In 1904, out of the 2.3 million hectares of land under cultivation, 600,000, or more than one-fourth, were under cotton. The Russians are doing the same in their colony, Turkestan, because in this way they will be in a better position to defeat their foreign competitors, to monopolize the sources of raw materials, and form a more economical and profitable textile trust in which all the processes of cotton production and manufacturing will be combined and concentrated in the hands of one set of owners. The interests pursued in exporting capital also give an impetus to the conquest of colonies, for in the colonial market it is easier to employ monopoly methods, and sometimes they are the only methods that can be employed, to eliminate competition, to ensure supplies, to secure the necessary connections, etc. The non-economic superstructure which grows up on the basis of finance capital, its politics and its ideology, stimulates the striving for colonial conquest. Finance capital does not want liberty, it wants domination, as Hilferding very truly says. 
and a French bourgeois writer, developing and supplementing, as it were, the idea of Cecil Rhodes, quoted above, footnote 7, writes that social causes should be added to the economic causes of modern colonial policy. Quote, Owing to the growing complexities of life and the difficulties which weigh not only on the masses of the workers, but also on the middle classes, impatience, irration, and hatred are accumulating in all the countries of the old civilization and are becoming a menace to public order. The energy which is being hurled out of the definite class channel must be given employment abroad in order to avert an explosion at home. Footnote 8. End quote. Since we are speaking of colonial policy in the epoch of capitalist imperialism, it must be observed that financed capital and its foreign policy, which is the struggle of the great powers for the economic and political division of the world, give rise to a number of transitional forms of state dependence. Not only are the two main groups of countries, those owning colonies and the colonies themselves, but also the diverse forms of dependent countries, which, politically, are formally independent, but in fact are enmeshed in the net of financial and diplomatic dependence, typical of this epoch. We have already referred to one form of dependence, the semi-colony. An example of another is provided by Argentina. Quote, South America, and especially Argentina, writes schultz Gewernitz in his work on British imperialism, is so dependent financially on London that it ought to be described as almost a British commercial colony. Footnote 9. End quote. Basing himself on the reports of the Austro-Hungarian consul at Buenos Aires for 1909, Schilder estimated the amount of British capital invested in Argentina at 8.75 billion francs. It is not difficult to imagine what strong connections British finance capital, and its faithful friend diplomacy, thereby acquires with the Argentine bourgeoisie with the circles that control the whole of that country's economic and political life. A somewhat different form of financial and diplomatic dependence, accompanied by political independence, is presented by Portugal. Portugal is an independent sovereign state, but actually, for more than 200 years, since the War of Spanish Succession, 1701 to 1714, it has been a British protectorate. Great Britain has protected Portugal and her colonies in order to fortify her own positions in the fight against her rivals, Spain and France. In return, Great Britain has received commercial privileges, preferential conditions for importing goods and especially capital into Portugal and the Portuguese colonies, the right to use the ports and islands of Portugal, her telegraph cables, etc. Footnote 10. Relations of this kind have always existed between the big and little states, but in the epoch of capitalist imperialism, they become a general system. They form part of the sum total of divide-the-world relations, and become links in the chain of operations of world finance capital. In order to finish with the question of the division of the world, I must make the following additional observation. The question was raised quite openly, and definitely not only in American literature, after the Spanish-American War, and in English literature after the Anglo-Boer War. At the very end of the 19th century, and the beginning of the 20th, not only has German literature, which has most jealously watched British imperialism, systematically given its appraisal of this fact. The question has also been raised in French bourgeois literature, 
as definitely and broadly as is thinkable from the bourgeois point of view. Let me quote Triot, the historian who, in his book, Political and Social Problems at the End of the 19th Century, in the chapter, The Great Powers and the Division of the World, wrote the following, quote, During the past few years, all the free territory of the globe, with the exception of China, has been occupied by the powers of Europe and North America. This has already brought about several conflicts and shifts of spheres of influence, and these foreshadow more terrible upheavals in the near future, for it is necessary to make haste. The nations which have not yet made provision for themselves run the risk of never receiving their share, and never participating in the tremendous exploitation of the globe, which will be one of the most essential features of the next century, i.e. the 20th. That is why all Europe and America have lately been afflicted with the fever of colonial expansion, of imperialism, that most noteworthy feature at the end of the 19th century. And the author added, In this partition of the world, in this furious hunt for the treasures and the big markets of the globe, the relative strength of the empires founded in this 19th century is totally out of proportion to the place occupied in Europe by the nations who founded them. The dominant powers in Europe, the arbiters of her destiny, are not equally preponderant in the whole world. And, as colonial might, the hope of controlling as yet unassessed wealth will evidently react upon the relative strength of the European powers. The colonial question, imperialism, if you will, which has already modified the political conditions of Europe itself, will modify them more and more. Footnote 11. End quote. And that concludes our fifth reading from Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. If you have suggestions for readings, as well as any questions, comments, or corrections, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com, or you can contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. Check out abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts there, about movies, books, video games, and anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. Also, I never say this at the end, but if you're enjoying the show, why not suggest it to some friends? Maybe you know someone who would like to do reading, but has a hard time actually doing it, uh, which is basically the point of the podcast anyway. Why not send it to them? At this point, there's quite a few episodes you could just pick one and link them to. But that's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.